Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. I hope your week is going well. And uh, as many of you already know from a personal standpoint, this building is alive with activity in the evenings, getting ready for Family Bible Week. And uh, I mean, all over this building is um, people running around and screwdrivers and hammers and saws and paint, lots of paint. And um, what about this? Doesn't look like much right now, but it will. And this is just a very exciting time. So Family Bible Week begins this coming Sunday night. And I don't know uh, what skits. There will be four, of course, four different rooms. I don't know which ones you'll be able to get. I hope you can catch all of them. If you can only catch one, naturally you should catch the Philippian jailer. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. In this quarter... We're studying heaven's deity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The first part of the quarter, we've emphasized the Holy Spirit. I think I have just one more class after this to talk about the Holy Spirit. Then we'll progress on to the Father and the Son. And uh, tonight I want to talk about speaking in tongues. How many of you have been in a service? I'm going to go ahead and raise my hand. How many of you have been in a service where people were practicing the speaking in tongues. How many of you? Yeah. Okay. How many of you have uh, maybe not been in such a service? How many of you have seen it on TV? Oh, even more, of course. Yeah, most everybody, I guess. So what I want to do is to go to Scripture, and let's take a, a class period now to examine the speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about what the Bible actually says, the, the occasions where it occurred, and I hope that it's in, enjoyable to you, this thought process. So we'll go to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the whole house, filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, to be, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so what you have here is something that occurred at Pentecost that has become exceedingly popular among some religionists. A, a pretty good segment of Christendom practices some form of tongue speaking. Frederick Bruner, in his book, A Theology of the Holy Spirit, said this, speaking in tongues in Pentecostalism is sometimes explained dispensationally as God's unique sign to his church in the present age. As a result, Pentecostals cherish tongues and the gift of their interpretation as God's special gift in this present time. Now, I would say that you could probably divide the different uh, 
positions about this or the views of tongue speaking into three categories. They are these. One, it's a sign to the church leaders that you are one of God's saved. Uh, as someone who, who's a member of the church and came from one of these churches said to me recently here, when I first came to that church and they became members of that church, he said, the leaders asked me, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And it meant something similar to what we're talking about tonight. He didn't really know what that involved, and so he said yes, because he assumed that if you were somebody who studied the Word of God and you believed in Jesus, that that must somehow correlate to being baptized in the Holy Spirit. So number one would be, it's a sign to the church leaders that you are one of God's saved. And in some cases, where I have personally known people, you do not know that you are one of the elect, you're one of the saved, until the Holy Spirit somehow operates on you in the chief way that's done, or shown, or exhibited, would be in the, the speaking in tongues. And until you pray through and receive this gift, then, you know, you're just not in. You're not in yet. Number two, the second thought about the speaking in tongues is that although the tongues today are unintelligible, it's a sign to unbelievers that God is approving what they're doing. Unintelligible, but it's a sign from God and it proves what they're doing or what they're teaching. And the third one would be this. The miraculous tongue speaking occurred in the New Testament times, but its function was finished, and that there are no miraculous tongues today, and that those who profess to practice miraculous tongues are in fact not doing so. And as you might assume, I take that last position. All right, here we go. The word tongue, or glossa, in the New Testament has two different meanings, depending on what verse it is. Now, this is not hard, because anytime you read a verse that uses this word, that I know of, every verse where it's used, I think it's just self-explanatory. It's rather intuitive that you read it and you say, you know what it is. And one of them is just the physical tongue in your head. And the other one would be a language that you speak. So let me just illustrate this. In Luke one twenty. Zacharias, who was John's dad, this is about him. So in Luke 1 and verse 20, And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. Now dropping down to 64. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. Now is that a language or... The tongue in his mouth, tongue in his mouth. His tongue was loosed and he spoke. All right, here's Luke 16, 24. You're familiar with this verse, talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And here's the rich man. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, same word, for I'm tormented in this flame. Physical tongue. Here's Mark seven thirty-five, At the Sea of Galilee, Deaf man with a speech impediment, Mark 7.35. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. All right? Physical tongue. Now let's shift gears together. 
and then sometimes in Scripture, it has to do with the language that is spoken. A human, legitimate language. Here's Acts 2 and verse 8. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, and this is Pentecost, and you're familiar with the fact that there was tongue speaking going on at Pentecost. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? That's not about the physical thing in your mouth. That's about a language. Now, this is a language of men, and it's explicitly stated in chapter 2, verse 6. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. So no question about that. That's the word tongue used with reference to a language. What was the purpose of the tongues in Acts chapter 2? Why, why the tongues? Yes, sir, Fred. several languages represented. So to get their attention, I've always taken the passage this way. God empowered the apostles to speak in the home tongues of these men so that not only would they still understand the word, but they would be all the more impressed. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And what Fred said is, and I'll just paraphrase this, that it had a dual purpose and one was that they were impressed by the fact that these men were speaking in languages they hadn't studied. And, and that the second benefit was that these people, all of them, were hearing the gospel. They understood the gospel. They heard it in their own language. It's a wonderful thing. I think about this in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. And if you want to know what the purpose of the Holy Spirit was coming on to Cornelius and his house, a smart thing to do is just to look at the results. What was accomplished? And what was accomplished there was that you know, Peter turns to, uh, to those Jews that came with him to the house of Cornelius and said, they've received, and it was tongues. We'll talk about that in a minute, but it was tongues. And he said, they've received the Holy Spirit just like we did. Can any forbid water that they should be baptized as well as we and, and commanded them to be baptized? They'd received the Holy Spirit and it showed itself in tongues. He showed himself in these abilities. You want to know what what that was about, look at the result. Well, the same thing is true here. What happened in Acts chapter 2? And the answer is that the people were stopped in their tracks. They realized that what was going on here was just purely miraculous. Now, brief, briefly, what is the difference between God acting miraculously and acting in our world in, in a natural way? And it's just very important that everybody gets terminology correct because we use this term miraculously pretty flippantly, I think. And I understand that. What we mean is just this is the work of God. But God works today in the world in wonderful ways that are not miraculous. Miraculous means supernatural. It means outside the course of what is natural. And he doesn't work that way today. He works, and he works profoundly and in ways that if it wasn't attributed to what is natural, it would be every bit as amazing as the miraculous. Can you tell me one where that's true? Hmm? The conception and birth of a child. You know, that's, that's a mighty work of God that could not happen without God, of course. 
And yet, it is inappropriate to call it a miracle because it's within the natural realm. Miracles were in the supernatural realm. It was outside of nature. And here's a case where I, I, I've been around people who speak lots of different languages. And I, I, you know, I pull a few words out, which is probably not a smart thing anyway. I, I learned early on going on these mission trips that if you, and I learned five words in, in Ukrainian, and I couldn't wait to use them. But people always assume when you start using them that you can speak a lot of the language, which is simply not true with me. And um, I need a, I always need a translator. In Acts chapter 2, what is it that happened? The, the answer is that people were taught and people were amazed at this miraculous event that had just occurred. Now, here's what I really want you to get. A tongue was a legitimate language. Acts 1.19 And it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem, insomuch as that field is called in their proper tongue, a Sodama, that is to say the field of blood. The field was called that in their tongue. In their tongue, it was called that. What does that mean? No ambiguity there. It's about a language. It's a language in their language. Acts 21.40, and when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spoke unto them in the Hebrew tongue. Language. Legitimate language. Acts 22 and verse 2. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. Acts 26.14. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Hebrew tongue. What does it mean? I mean, it's, it's a language. And in Acts chapter 2, when they said we heard, we heard them speak in our own tongue, it means in our own language. Uh, Charles. Well, it was obviously not normal for these Hebrews in Acts 2 because the people were not, the people didn't hear it and say, oh, well, that happens all the time. They said, they were amazed and said, how can this be? Okay, well, what was happening is the apostles spoke in other tongues in other languages, and it was a miracle, and it was amazing to those people, and they listened. And that was the purpose of miracles, after all, was to confirm the word, right? It confirmed the word. How do you know that what's being taught is from God? Well, Nicodemus said in John 3, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God because no man can do the things that you do except God be with him. No, That's what happened in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And 3,000 people were baptized, who, by the way, came there antagonistic, at least largely antagonistic, toward Jesus. This wasn't a friendly crowd. He had just been crucified 40 days ago, right? And, and here, these brave apostles are speaking in public in Jerusalem at Pentecost, a Jewish feast, 
about Jesus Christ. Well, what is it that made people listen? And I would say it was the miraculous. And so Peter says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And they believed the prophet Joel. This is a fulfillment of that. And it was miraculous. And in this case, it was the speaking in tongues. The point I wanted you to get is that they spoke in a legitimate language. All right? Now, next. Tongue speaking was promised as a sign. It was to be a sign. Mark sixteen seventeen, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. It would be a sign. That is to say that, as we've been talking about Acts chapter 2, when people heard this, they knew. When, when you get to Acts 10 at Cornelius' house, when, when those Cornelius and his house started speaking in tongues, I mean, it was a sign. And it was profound, and Peter said, we got to baptize these Gentiles because obviously God has sent the Holy Spirit and given them this miraculous ability. So you get to Acts chapter 2, and here's this big occurrence. Now I want you to I want to read the, the next few verses, beginning in verse 1, but this was promised. These were legitimate languages. And then you have other people, as time goes on, who were given this same gift. So back to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. It wasn't a rushing mighty wind. It was a sound from heaven that sounded like that. And there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. It doesn't say fire. It was like fire. And it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does that mean? He was feeding them this language as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and they were astonished because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Is that clear? Is that clear, everybody? They heard them speak in in their own languages. The Holy Spirit was giving these apostles these languages, gave, as the scripture says, gave them utterance. If you heard me speak tonight in Ukrainian, you would know that it came from God because I don't know how to speak Ukrainian except my five words. And really, I think it's diminished now before. Seven, and they were all amazed, and they marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Christians, Arabs, we hear them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Just as promised, legitimate languages. Now flip over to Acts chapter 19. This isn't the only occurrence of it. And you have it in Acts 19 when you have these 12 that had to be baptized again. Let's start with verse 1. Acts 19 and verse 1. And it came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, 
Do you receive the Holy, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I've always thought that question was so very interesting. And they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that called into question their baptism. Because if you were baptized with Christ's baptism that was launched in Acts chapter 2, where we've been reading at Pentecost, the beginning of the church, then they would have known about the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Unto, into what then were you baptized? They said, John's baptism. And Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, why did Paul lay his hands on them? Hmm, to give them the miraculous gifts. The way those gifts were conveyed is by the laying on of an apostle's hands. And you can read Acts 8 to get more information about that. But that's how it was done. If, if somebody was given the miraculous ability by an apostle, he could, he could pr- practice the miracles or whatever he was given, the gift he was given, but he could not confer those miraculous gifts to other people. Fred? I'll be happy to do that. Okay, would you repeat that? I said, uh, earlier at the beginning, you said, for some, receiving the Holy Spirit has to mean that you're approved by God. You're you're approved by God, and the miraculous gift that you're exhibiting, God approves of. Okay. If you don't receive the Holy Spirit in that way, you're not saved. That's what is taught. Right. But now, how do people that subscribe to that square that to what you just read Paul saying in Acts 19 as part of the rebuttal regarding receiving the Holy Spirit? And what he says in Romans 6, where he makes it clear you're baptized to, among other things, Receive the Holy Spirit. And that's confirmed in Acts 2 and verse 38. How do they square with the emphasis they put on receiving the Holy Spirit with other scripture that clearly says when you're baptized, you're forgiven of sins, you're reconciled to God, and you receive the Holy Spirit as confirmation of those things and a host of others. Right. The question uh, compressed would be, um, people today who believe that the baptism of the Holy or the tongue speaking is evidence that you're saved and that, you're, that you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that you're in the elect, how, how, do they, how do they reconcile that with these passages which teach that you have to obey the gospel? And Romans 6 says that we're buried in water, you know, into Christ, into his death, um, and uh, we're saved. This is how we're saved. How do you reconcile that? And, I think, I think that, in fairness, the way that it would be argued is probably with Acts 10, with Cornelius, and, and what they would believe is that Cornelius and his house received the Holy Spirit before they were baptized, and thus the false assumption that that's when they were saved. 
And, and anybody want to, def, to defend the truth about that? I mean, why would you argue that scripturally? So Cornelius and his house received the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. Is that, was that evidence that they were saved? What James says is right, of course, that this is a very special case. And it was to say from heaven that we are going to baptize and accept Gentiles. And up to this point, that hasn't been done. And Peter saw the miracle of the tongues. And then he turned to those Jews and said, can you forbid water? Which is just telling, you know, that's what they would have done. And by the way, when you get to the next chapter, chapter 11, Peter goes back to Jerusalem and has to defend it before the Jews, the Jewish Christians. You went in and you, you, you were with Gentiles? That's what they said. Did you really do this? And he said, let me tell you what happened. And he talks about this, this tongue speaking, the miraculous. But were, let's just nail this down. Was Cornelius and his house saved when they had the ability to speak in tongues as an outward sign of inward grace? I love that. <laughs> no, oh, but, but how? I'm sorry, but So, how would you respond to that? And the answer that I would give is that this is Peter. This is Peter, y'all. And Peter is the one who, in 1 Peter 3 21, would write, The like figure wherein to baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not a bath. I know that it's water. I know you're being immersed in water, but it's not a putting away the filth of the flesh. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. What is it then? Where's the point at which you're saved? And if you say it's when you're able to speak in tongues, no, it's not. That's not what the book says. And Peter was the one who would teach us that. It was Peter. The same Peter in Acts chapter 2, in verse 38, and he, before all those people, they said, what are we going to do? What are we? They were afraid of God striking them down. They crucified the Son of God. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. And so there you are. Um, they Then uh, they were told they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that. And I believe that many of them surely had the, the gift of speaking in tongues after that. But they were saved when they were baptized. Now that's very important because you and I do not have the gift of tongues. Fred. They emphasize a miraculous receipt of the Holy Spirit. So Romans 6, you baptized to be united with Jesus. Scripture shows that union to be unique to baptism because it's not said to occur by any other action anywhere else in Scripture. Only through baptism does that union occur. And being united in the likeness of his death, verse 6 says, our old self with all our sins is taken away. Over in Colossians 2, Paul describes that as the circumcision of Christ. And he ties it directly to baptism which means you're baptized, that's the only time the circumcision of Christ occurs. Taking away sins means removing them. Yes. That can only mean one thing. Very good. You're what Fred is emphasizing is, is Romans 6 again. It's just a valid point. Everything I need to know about baptism, I suppose I could learn from Romans 6. I mean, that's, it, is, it is so to the point 
and it is an imitation of the gospel, which I preached recently about 1 Corinthians 15, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's, it is sort of duplicated in the, in the act of baptism. Buried in baptism, we rise out of that grave to walk in newness of life. Newness of life. And um, you know what? I would be pleased as could be to believe that tongue speaking today is the evidence that a person is saved if that's what the Bible taught. That is not what the Bible teaches. I mean, I'd be fine with it. Whatever the Lord wants to do, I'm fine with. That would be fine. That's not what it's teaching. Uh, let's see. Bill. Great point. When Peter is defending what happened with this Gentile convert, Cornelius, in Acts 10, yes, I baptized him. And these Jewish Christians say, did you really do that? And he went through the whole story, and he, and he goes all the way back, and he says, now, when they received the Holy Spirit like we did at the beginning, just incredibly telling, back at the beginning, which is the beginning of the church, in Acts 2, what was I going to do? Could I fight against God? What could I do? Of course I baptized them. And why did he baptize them? For the remission of sins. That's what he had taught. Brother James. Yes. Right. And there, that's, that's true about the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3. The administrator of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is said to be Jesus. The baptism in water, which we practice, is us. We administer that baptism. And um, so that's a good, that's a good point. Somebody else? Here. spiritual gift chapters in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And I want to make reference this time, if we have time, to talk about this. But you had, uh, what is it, nine different spiritual gifts. Tongues is one. But, of course, a lot of those Christians had miraculous gifts that weren't tongues, the speaking in tongues. And so what about them? If, if tongue speaking is the sign by which we know we're saved, were they? Of course, that's a ridiculous question when you read the chapters. You, you just know, of course. So uh, that's a great point. Anybody else before we move on? Very good. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 14. And we, we should be able to get this in. It's really important before the uh, bell stops us. Tongues were never intended to be a special gift to the church. They were never to be a sign to the church. Can I repeat that? The miraculous ability to speak in languages that you haven't studied, this tongue speaking, glossa, it was never intended to be assigned to the church or to the church leaders as people are doing it today. 
Now we're in verse uh, 2. If you read verse 2 and that's all you had, I think that you would get the idea that tongue speaking in general is primarily for the Christian who uses it to communicate on a special level with God. If, if verse 2 was all you had, you might believe that. But it isn't all that you have. And this chapter is powerfully given over. If you read the whole chapter, it's powerfully given over to this principle. The, the speaking in tongues is not the best gift. And the reason is, among the miraculous gifts, and the reason is that only a very limited number of people benefit from the speaking in tongues. And that would be people who happen to speak that language. And I, I've been around people who spoke, spoke uh, Spanish. I don't speak Spanish. Well, I have five, I know five words. I don't speak Spanish. And, and I've been around them, uh, folks that speak that, that great language a lot. And I have to have an interpreter or those conversations do mean no good. They do mean no good. That was the problem. You have Acts chapter 2 and you have these people who, who are speaking in tongues. They have the miraculous gifts. You have 1 Corinthians 14. You have people who are speaking in tongues. When they are with the unbelievers and the, the apostles do it in Acts 2, it's a great teaching tool. It's a great thing. But when, you, when those people go back to their hometowns and everybody speaks their language and they speak in a language different from that, it's not a great thing. In fact, it's a bad thing. It's bad because you're not teaching anybody anything. Yeah, but I've got the ability to speak Russian. Didn't you know that I can speak Russian? Let me, let me say something to you in Russian. Big deal. <laughs> Big deal. How long? What's that good for? Right? And so that's what 1 Corinthians 14 is about. Here's the circumstance. Unlike Acts 2, these people now have gone back home again. They're to their own places. And now it doesn't have the same meaning or impact. And so 1 Corinthians 14 is to make some rules about this. Now I want you to look at verse 22. Therefore tongues are, are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who do not believe. Prophesying does not serve those who do not believe, but those who believe. Now, why is it that tongues are not assigned to the church or to the church leaders or to the other Christians. He says, when you're, when you're speaking these things, uh, you know, the purpose of the tongues was Acts 2. The purpose of the tongues was, was to, to show people a miraculous sign so that they would know that this was from God and also it taught them. But if you speak to people who cannot speak that language, it's just not good for anything. And so he says, it's better that you prophesy. You ought to seek the gift of prophecy. The prophecy and tongue speaking have this in common. In both cases, you have a communication of revelation from God. But prophecy is, is directly in your own tongue. And so today, tonight, I'm speaking in English. I don't have a prophecy, and it's not coming to me directly from God. I have to study. But if I had the gift of prophecy... I, I would say in English to you tonight, here's what God says, and I'd lay it out, right? If I spoke it to you in, in Russian, it would do most of us in this room no good. And that's the purpose of 1 Corinthians 14. That's the point. So 
in Mark 16, 17, these tongues were, were considered or described as a sign. What's a sign? It's a supernatural occurrence which motivates unbelievers to become believers. Here's Hebrews 2 and verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. They confirmed the word of the Lord. How? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. That's the purpose of the miracles, including the tongues. Now here's back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. Prophecy is better because all the church is edified. That's not true about tongues. Drop down to verse 9. Tongues, when no one is present who speaks that foreign language, are useless. It's like speaking into the air. Verse 11. Doing this, that is, speaking these languages where people don't know them, makes you look like a barbarian. Verse 23. Speaking these, where nobody speaks that language, makes you look like you're mad. Cray-cray, you know? Paul says that tongues are a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers. This is 1 Corinthians 14, 22, and you ought to underline it. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. So, You have some in 1 Corinthians 12 in this list of the nine different miraculous gifts that had the gift of tongues. The problem is they wanted to use their gift despite the fact that there wasn't always people who they could speak to in their own language. So the choice was to speak what made no sense to anyone in the assembly or get an interpreter who could say, here's what's being taught. In the Corinthian brethren in 14 And you need, I'm not going to take the time, I don't have the time to read the whole chapter, but that's what I would encourage you to do, and you will get it. You'll get it if you haven't already. Uh, The problem is they wanted to speak in these tongues, and and it was speaking into the air. And so Paul admonishes them. He, He chastises them for making a show of their tongue speaking as if they have some special spirituality in this gift. The only time that tongues were used as a sign to believers is in Acts 10 at the house of Cornelius. But like James was saying, and he's right, this was a special circumstance, a unique circumstance all around. It was to have the God of heaven to shout, if you please, and say, I do want Gentiles in the church. The gospel is for all men, not just the Jews. And how did he do it? He gave the Gentiles the ability to speak in tongues, at which time the apostle turns to those Jews, that came, Jewish Christians, who came with him and said, "What? can you forbid that we baptize these people? Can you do that? And they couldn't. They just stood there speechless. They, what were they going to say? God had put his stamp of approval on the Gentiles. And that was the purpose. Now, I have about four minutes. Let's do this. The ability to speak miraculously in tongues has passed away. It does not exist today. And it's for that reason that when you, whenever, whenever you went to one of those services, and I've been, 
And uh, the people were terribly sincere. I know they're sincere. They're just misguided. The tongues that you heard are no language at all. They're no language. And the funny thing about it, I, I don't speak Russian, but buddy, I know that it's a language when I hear it. Right? I don't know Spanish, but when I hear it, I know that it's a language. But when I hear what people pass off as tongues today, I know it's not. And I could do it as good as them. Right? I could do that. If you recorded an hour of it, and then you played it back, I'm not questioning their sincerity. I'm just saying, if you played it back, what you would find is repeated syllables. Because you don't have so many. Only everybody, you know, even, even people like you with a lot of imagination, you only have so many of these false syllables, things that you could spit out. You only have so many inside of you that you could just keep on rolling out. We're just humans, after all. It's not a language. It's just not a language. And... It differs in that from what you have in the New Testament. So here's 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Tongues were for a limited time. In Acts 19, after Acts 19, and listen closely to this, after Acts 19 where you have those 12 who had to be baptized again and you have reference to the fact that they spoke in tongues. After Acts 19, ready for this? There's no other reference to it except for the triad of chapters in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. After that, it's done. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was terribly significant. It wasn't something that continued on in the church. 1 Corinthians 14 is to regulate it and say, this is a problem. Tongue speaking is a problem. You ought to seek prophecy instead of tongue speaking. You ought to speak, seek preaching that comes directly from God in your own language. Now here's 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8. I'm going to read this, and something that he says is going to pass away. I want you to be impressed with the fact that what he's describing are things by which God gave miraculous, Holy Spirit gave miraculous revelation. This is about communicating knowledge. This is verse 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Charity, or love, never fails. But whether they be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether they be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, miraculous knowledge, it's a miraculous context, it shall vanish away. It doesn't mean when you become a Christian your brains empty out. It's talking about miraculous knowledge. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. That is, the the scripture didn't come to one man all at one time. It came in, in parts and pieces. And you have 40 different writers over 1,600 years. And then it was when it was all finished in about A.D. 70, I mean, you have the whole completed scripture. But when that which is, I'm sorry, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect, complete is what perfect means. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now he's going to illustrate it. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What does that mean? Well, there were, there were things characteristic of children. What we're going to do this week is teach children the conversion examples. And we're going to do it on a very, very, very elementary level. I mean very elementary. Because they're kids. 
and then we're going to put that away. You can come to the different classes. We'll be, it's just wonderful. We make it available to the adults, but it ain't, it ain't for you. I mean, it's, what I mean is that you're going to see it's very elementary. It is for children. It's for the kids. All right? So here's his illustration. When, when that which is perfect is coming, ladies and gentlemen, what is perfect is the finished word of God. It is the finished revelation from God. And when it was put together and it was finished, then the, the miraculous things that were designed to confirm the word of those who were preaching, when the miraculous signs that were used to write down the, the revelation by inspiration, all these things are done away with. That was part of the infancy the childhood of the church, and it no longer exists. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now abides faith, hope, and love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. One more thing, and then I'm going to stop just a second. Tongue speaking today is something that bursts forth from a person as evidence that he is saved. That's what's professed. In other words, the Holy Spirit made me do it. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 32 says this. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Spirit, the Holy Spirit was subject to the speaker. Subject to the speaker. He could choose whether or not to speak it. Thanks for coming. Appreciate your comments. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.